Welcome to part two of this episode of the Golden Age of Cricket podcast, dedicated to the later part of the life and career of former Australian captain Billy Murdoch. My name is Tom Ford. We return now as I'm joined by Murdoch's biographers Richard Cashman and Rick Sissons. So after his first season with Sussex in 1893, uh, he returns to Australia with Jemima in the Australian summer, 93-94, for the first time since they've moved to England. Um, Reading your book, uh, we learn about his application to play for New South Wales in a shield match against Victoria, which became controversial, didn't it? Why why was this so controversial? Um, I think because he wasn't actually living in New South Wales. I think they came back to um, Australia. Every time they came back to Australia... To sort out their finances. To sort out mm. the will and the, the finances. Will, yes. Watson had stipulated that... Um, Watson owned this vast amount of property. He'd invested in all manner of things, but he stipulated that none of this property could be sold until 20 years after his death. So that was all these legal issues, uh, lots of court cases... Um, and that was why they came back in 1993-94 and why they then came back uh, prior to his death in 1909-10-11. They were based in Melbourne and the issue arose, I think that is the question of why would he, should be, he wasn't in New South Wales anymore. Mm. He was born in New South Wales, Bendigo. Why should he be allowed to play for New South Wales? There were other precedents like Jim Phillips who played, who was a, England, the MCC, and later an umpire. He used to come back and play. So there were precedents of people coming back and playing. He was always very strongly pro New South Wales. He'd always said, even when they lived in Melbourne, that he would never play for Victoria. He always felt his, he was from New South Wales, and that's who would play for. That was in the, around you know 1889 after he started playing cricket again after Watson's death. He was never any question he was going to play for anybody but New South Wales. Mm. So. We have touched on this already, but um, he's captaining Sussex in uh, in England. Um, Sussex are a weak side at this point in time in the early 1890s, mid-1890s. Around the mid-1890s, their batting stocks are boosted by the arrival of Ranjit Singhji and C.B. Fry, but their bowling continues to be a worry, and Murdoch recruits the 40-year-old Alfred Shaw uh, rather rotund Alfred Shaw, who uh, history remembers as the first bowler of a ball in Test cricket. Why do you think he recruited such an aging bowler? I mean, I think even after a few seasons, Shaw just can't bowl anymore because Murdoch's driving him into the ground, literally. And even Murdoch has to take up bowling. Um, what do you think this says about Murdoch as a captain? Was he you know, in terms of the um, uh, using his bowlers, was was he a good captain on that front, do you think? Um, I think, you know, Murdoch recruiting Shaw was bizarre and Shaw wanting to play is even more bizarre uh, by this point. You know, Shaw hasn't played for some time. He's, um, on, he's employed by Lord Sheffield, uh, who's then, of course, the president and patron of Sussex. And um, Murdoch has to actually get permission of Lord Sheffield for Shaw to play for Sussex. Um, so 
wasn't a foregone conclusion he would play. And he, he barely played in the end. It was just too hard for him. And he complains about the fact Murdoch bowled him for long periods and that he had sore feet. And in the end, he just quit. And mm. It was just all too much for him, really. Um, and he, it was an odd decision, really. But then maybe it was just a, a reflection of the poor state of... Because um, Murdoch repeatedly says after... Shaw bowls to him in the nets. You've got to come and play for Sussex. You've got to come and play because Shaw was involved in Sussex cricket through Lord Sheffield. Mm. Um, and in the end, Shaw reluctantly agreed. But it didn't last long. I think he only played one season and then only a small number of matches. But also because Murdoch bowled him for long periods. Mm. You know, this old man bowling dozens and dozens of overs was ridiculous. Do we have any indication i assume there isn't any footage of i don't think there's footage of murdoch batting do we have any idea what sort of bowler murdoch was his his bowling records are small i think he took something like 10 first class wickets but as i mentioned he had to take up the bowling for sussex because their stocks were so low what do we know about his bowling as i understand it was a sort of you know medium pace round arm bowler Certainly no photographs of him bowling. Nothing particular. You know, I used to play in club cricket and open the bowling, get a few wickets and so forth, but not much of a bowler, frankly, mm. that seems pretty clear. It's probably better as a wicketkeeper. Yes, well, of course, he was a mm. very good wicketkeeper mm. early on, wasn't he? Yeah. So let's, um, uh, let's hurry along to, say, the late 1890s. He's still, uh, still playing for Sussex, but 1899 in particular was his Annus Horribilis. Uh, his form slumped terribly. Uh, his mother died. Uh, you mentioned before that his mother moved with them to England. Um, and, of course, he continues to have all sorts of financial issues. Um, and he gives up the Sussex captaincy as well. So he's 45 years old at this stage. Um, what sort of man was he uh, sort of internally? Did he have... How did he cope during tough times? Was he res- was he a resilient individual? Well, when his mother died in 1899, he just stopped playing cricket, period. His mother didn't live with them. She lived separately in, in Knightsbridge um, with a servant. Um, and, you know, this is a woman whose background was, you know, daughter of a, a convict had worked well. She changed initially. She, she was Susanna Flegg, presented herself as a... Um, completely different person, I think, from what she was originally. And Murdoch was obviously very close to her. The fact that he wanted to be buried with her mm. um, is very symptomatic of that. So that death of his mother in 1899 must have obviously rocked him because he stopped playing cricket altogether halfway through the season. What does that show about him? Well, I suppose, it, was he resilient or given the circumstances of his mother? I think it was shows he a great character to stop playing cricket, actually, that this was more important to him than playing county cricket? I think he was a, overall a pretty resilient person, particularly in his younger days. Uh, an optimistic uh, person. He had a good sense of humour. But perhaps the resiliency was tested as he got older mm. and as he put on more weight and he drank a lot as well. And uh, so life got uh, tougher for him. So the following year in... 1900, he joins London County Cricket Club, um, which of course is also headed up by the great W.G. Grace. Um, 
who ends his career with Gloucestershire. Is it Gloucestershire? Yes, I think so. Uh, now, if you look up photos of Billy Murdoch at this time, there are a number of fantastic photos of him and Grace together. They seem to, f- to have formed this wonderful friendship, even though they were on-field adversaries a decade earlier uh, when they were both at their at their peak. Um, how, how do you explain this uh, friendship? How did it come about? Uh, did Grace actively recruit the great former Australian captain? Uh, what can you tell us about it? I think the friendship goes back a long way. I think it was around in 1880 when um, Grace got 152 and Murdoch, with a couple of last wicket partnerships, got 153. Mm. And I, I think uh, they had a great respect for each other and they were the two best batsmen in the world. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Long-standing and socially. I mean, it's interesting socially too because Grace is a doctor. He's not really part of the cricket you know, establishment, i.e. he's not, Arist- he's not an aristocrat. He's not a ha- Lord Harris or Lord Hawke or... Uh, Viscount this or whatever. So he's always a slight bit of an outsider. He's obviously tolerated because he's an amazing player and he's the face of the game. And Murdoch is very much like that too. He's a bit of an outsider. He's a, you know, he qualified as a solicitor, Grace qualified as a doctor. Mm-hmm. So they're quite socially on a sort of class level, quite similar. They're both quite funny and entertaining. Um, uh, later on, you know, Murdoch always had funny quips and sayings. When he was writing the Daily Mail, he often called players funny, you know, like Tibby Cotter. He always used to call him Terror Cotter. Right. Not, mm. the, not the Terror, but yes. Terror as in a pot. Terror, T-E-R-R-A, Cotter, C-O-T-T-A. Mm. So he's quite funny and gregarious. Um, and I think, yeah, the pair of them loved that sort of life of playing cricket, mm. country house cricket, playing club cricket. Uh, if they decided golf got popular. They decided to take up golf. Grace was a terrible golfer, but Murdoch wasn't bad. They decided to take up bowls together, mm. and both were really good at bowls. Very and good, yeah. So at Crystal Palace, where London County was, there was a bowling club, and they got involved and sort of took that over. So I think they just had a really good time, these two sort of mm. famous yeah. middle-aged cricketers. Murdoch loved to s- stay up late mm. and drink and socialise. Did Grace do that? Grace did well, well, of course, Grace notoriously, when he came here with Lord Sheffield, is said to have drank, you know, three thousand pounds worth of wine. Mm. Yes, so, late, so late night sociability. Yes, I think the story uh, Grace used to certainly in his later years, when he put on a lot of weight, he was drinking whiskey and soda before going out to batting. I think um, this is a question without notice, but do you also think they possibly shared a similar view of money? And cricket. Grace was the most famous shamateur of them all. He certainly used cricket as a way of making money. Did Billy, we know he had financial issues, but did he also try and extract money from cricket? I think he always was trying to do that, but he he failed. Like he would have liked to have been secretary of the MCC because Mm. he would have got £300 a year and they weren't having a bar of that. And the period when he's playing for London County, he after that, he starts to write for the Daily Mail as a cricket correspondent. So they were paying him. For, he only managed to do that for a season. It sort of peters out, begins enthusiastically when the 1980s. Got shorter and shorter. Yeah, the articles <laughs> get shorter and shorter. And, mm. you know, initially he's very keen. It's the 1905 Australian side coming and he's writing for the 
Daily Mail and then that sort of peters out. Um, you know, we had the trip to South Africa. He went there for money. So, yeah. So there money. is a parallel with Greece. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And just on that, Rick, uh, was he a good writer? Um, you know, you've mentioned he came up with these nicknames of, of players as such, but is his um, observations of cricket good? Uh, as far as we know, he didn't have a ghostwriter. This is actually no, no, murder. All this material himself. He was, and he. I think the, the articles that appeared in the Daily Mail are quite interesting, you know, when he, he comments on... So the Daily Mail got him to Limerick um, so he could get on board the ship with the Australians. So he became the first person to talk to the 1905 Australian team. And there's some quite interesting observations about, you know, the Australian players, you know, that Clem Hill... Uh, he, he thinks Clem Hill is going to retire very shortly because he only seems to be interested in stockbroking pages of the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also tells the Australian players that you know the best bowler in England is um, a bowler from Derbyshire. Uh, I think he said it was Arnie Warren. I think it was Warren, um, which was really pressing because he only ever played one test and he got a trumper out in both innings. Mm. And then he drank to him and got on the piss and Lords never selected him again. Yeah. But, you know, so there were quite interesting observations. Mm. Um, he didn't pull any punches. He told JB, uh, told Jack Hobbs that, you know, Dune needed to improve his fielding. He said that in the papers. This was a very young Jack Hobbs at mm. that point. So they're quite interesting articles. I wouldn't say they're not, you know, it's not Neville Cardus, but it's, no, entertaining. But, and they're certainly useful for the biographer to find how he views the next generation and whether there's that, you know, cricket was better in my day sort of approach. Which I don't know if there's much reflective sense no. in his writing. Right. We don't get a sense of how Murdoch looks at all of this. And they increasingly became matches closer to home. Yes. He obviously got fed up with travelling right. to, you know, his... It's funny when you said they peter out. Yeah, they do peter out and they mm. come shorter and they come. He obviously prefers to watch a match at the Oval or Lords than having to travel to Cheltenham. Mm. So he finally retires in 1904, which coincides with uh, London County losing its first class status. It didn't have full first class no. status, but it was given first class status for various games. But they're finally sort of, they lose everything and he decides to retire. Um, Grace, I think, goes on for a few more seasons, playing the odd match here and there. Um, what did retirement, or certainly his non-cricket playing days, look like for Murdoch? How did he occupy his time? Well, this is a bit tricky. Not a lot of information on that. I mean, in 1905, he wrote for the Daily Mail, and then we know that he ends up back in Australia, nine or ten, because of the court case. What happens between those two? Well. Difficult to know. The The children are now all um, growing up and at schools or have left school. Um, one of the boys is at Repton in 1904, is playing for Repton, at the same same side as Jack Crawford, the most mm-hmm. considered to be the greatest, most prodigious qualified schoolboy who went on to play for Surrey while still at Repton. Um, so, you know, he's got a son who's doing well at Repton in his last year. What happens between 1906 and that other period. Well, we know that he and Jemima went to Europe. There's the odd snippet here and there where someone said he was in Paris. Didn't he go to the races? Went to the races, uh, did some pigeon shooting down in the south of France, but it's all very patchy. It's just the odd 
there are no letters that give us any indication of what they're doing at this point. And it's just the odd snippets in newspapers. They were seen this or there, or they were back in um, Australia, I think, in 1909. So um, I think, you know, they did the grand tour mm. of Europe. That seems pretty clear. They could obviously managed to do that i mean even though they all seem to be struggling financially they're still pretty well off mm. i mean they've got a thousand pounds a year for the children's education and they've got 600 pounds a year which is still a lot of money in that period so, you know they could live really well mm. but we lose sight of them a bit in this period murdoch's a solicitor but there is not be unfortunately a big cache of murdoch letters mm. which is a great pity for me because you might must- turn ups well, that would be amazing, wouldn't it, if they Did, turned up? Were you aware of this before you uh, dove headfirst into a Murdoch biography? You've each individually danced around Murdoch's life with your other research. Were you aware of the dearth of letters before you started researching? Because these letters often for a biographer are uh, the basis of a, yeah. a biography. I think we knew... Yeah, I think, and when you, it's very rare you find um, caches of letters. I remember Peter Wynne Thomas wrote the biography of Arthur Shrewsbury. He was well embarked on that. And then a relative just dumped a load of letters on his desk. I mean, wow, what a treasure trove that was. Mm. So I think in the period that we've been working in, it was, it was quite, it is quite rare to find large collections of letters from any letters? Yeah, mm. any letters either written to or from people. It's very hard mm. to find them. Maybe they'll turn up one day. Someone one will clear out that. Possibly, yeah. yes. Uh, the Murdoch letters revealed. Which, you know, it makes you think, why is there very little? You know, is it because Murdoch didn't care? Was he not a collector? Did he have no sense of posterity? I mean, or was it perhaps the subsequent generations who tossed it all out? I mean, you've got other cricketers like a trumper where there's a lot of memorabilia and people look far and wide for his bats and caps. But from what you're saying, there's little uh, in existence now of, of Billy. I don't think he tossed it out. I don't think he had a um, good reflective sense of mm. what he was and what enterprise he was involved in. Yes. So I and I don't think he, he um, wrote wrote much mm. in letters or certainly in articles. And it's a good point. I mean, we have to remember in the eighteen eighties, nineties, there's not that sense that there is now of um, keeping bats and caps i mean there there probably wasn't the market that there is now for these items for collectors and such so they often i mean we we know stories of trumper and things you know giving his bats away after one knock and using some schoolboy's bat and then giving a bat to him sort of thing it's it was a different time that's for sure and well, look, look at look at trumper oh victor trumper's diary of the 19 is it 1902 or 1899 tour and then look at the diary it says batted with duff yeah. That's a whole. That's right. an entry for a whole page. <laughs> so, 
Yeah. Made it with Jeff for a whole page. Yeah, yeah. it was like, okay, that mm. was a bit of a disappointment. Yeah. There was a beginning sense of the value of memorabilia because in the oval t- in the um, 1882 test, Blackham got the ball. Yes. Mm. And subsequently that's appeared and it's mm. been... And I think Blackham then put it up for auction in his lifetime, I think I've read this somewhere, to raise with, funds for... mounted on something. Like yeah, that. and it was to raise funds for something like a new stand at the MCG or something, and it, it made a huge amount of money. So, you know, you're right on that front, Richard. Um, also, going back to the previous discussion um, about what Murdoch was doing post-cricket, during this time, the J.B. Watson estate so just to explain when he died it was stipulated um after 20 years so in 1909 uh up until then the trust would allow uh say billy and jemima to have was it 600 pounds to live off and then 20 years after the death it was finally the lands were sold or evaluated buildings buildings, buildings yeah in melbourne large you own large parts of central Melbourne. Yeah, were finally sold and then disseminated amongst the remaining children, Jemima being one. So uh, finally Murdoch, the Murdoch family comes into all this money, I assume. A a few years before he died. Just before, yes. (laughs) Maybe the shock killed him. Um, So is this finally the resolution that he's looking for in terms of financial stability? Well, if it was, he didn't live long to... Mm. Enjoy it yeah. <laughs> because you know he died. Jemima went back to England in 1917 or 18. She ends up in an asylum. She dies, you know, not long after that. One of her daughters dies around the same time. Um, a couple of the boys, one joins the Royal Australian, sorry, the RAF. Another one dies um, in the late 20s. Uh, having gambled most of the family money away. You know, so the family sort of disintegrates, really, after that. So he even took his life, didn't he? Yeah, he, he gassed himself, unfortunately, in um, the south of France. So you know, after all this attempt to get part of this enormous wealth, what happens? The family just doesn't. You know, Murdoch dies, Jemima goes into an asylum. Children have various tragic endings. So returning to uh, his death, which is how you started the book, 1911 at the MCG. Um, It's the Test Match Australia and South Africa, I think. He dies during the lunch break. what was Murdoch's reputation in Australia at that time? Was he revered? Was he would have he been welcomed into the long room as the Australian champion uh, that we now consider him to be? I think he was recognised, and I don't know whether he was revered uh, because he he left Australia. Mm. And there's a funny article that in the Melbourne Leader, I think that Felix. Tom Horan. Tom Horan wrote about I was walking down Melbourne, I bumped into Billy Murdoch. Um, but the fact that, you know, Murdoch clearly hadn't come back and with a great, fa- you know, it wasn't being debated and celebrated. Oh, I bumped into him by chance and then he'd gone. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was like, but it was definitely Billy Murdoch. I recognize, you know, he says I sort of recognize Murdoch. It was definitely Murdoch. But um, the fact he was in the pavilion, I suppose, at Melbourne, must have some acceptance of him. But he didn't come back for the cricket. He no. Came back for no. The, the, the will of uh, yep. J.B. Watson. So it probably would be a, uh, would have been a quite low-key return. There is a wonderful photo. I think you and I have discussed it online, Rick. Um, I think taken at this, maybe one of the, I think maybe in 1909 he was back for something and he's sitting... I think outside the MCC and there's a team photo of former players, George Giffen's there and um, Harry Trott, I think is there and he's sitting front row center like Grace Wood. And he's got a straw hat on. and um, It's probably one of the last photos of him taken actually. Um, it's lovely and I, I, it's readily available online. Um, gentlemen, the next section of the podcast is going through his statistics. I'm just going to read them out. Afterwards, we can discuss them. Um, there's not much to talk about on on the bowling front. I mentioned earlier, I think he took 10 first-class wickets. Um, but overall, so I'll go through his test record. He played 19 matches, 34 innings. Um, he was left not out on five occasions. He scored a total of 908 runs with a high score of 211. So his overall test average was 31.31. He scored two centuries in his test career and 150, and he took 14 catches. Um, As is often the case with cricketers from this time, his first-class record is much more substantial. So he played 391 matches, 679 innings, um, scored a total of 16,953 runs with a high score of 321 famous innings. His first class average was 26.86 and he scored 19 centuries. Interestingly, he scored 85 50s. Uh, so again, this is the era before mega huge scores. He'd often reach 50 and then get out. Um, but it's I, also the era of uncovered wickets. Exactly. So, you know, it's much harder yes. you know, than to go on from 50 to 100 or even bigger scores because the, the wickets were much more difficult. And from, what, and from what I've read, particularly in the 1870s and 80s, the, the wickets were really bad. Uh, this was before they had curators and so wickets would off. And this is the case in England and Australia. But you would imagine in Australia with the with the heat that the wickets were unruly. Um, batsmen were often hit terribly hard. And um, so it is, it is still a very impressive record. Um, and I did just a little analysis of his career after 1890. So he returns and he's, his batting average only dips slightly. So it goes from uh, first class record overall is 26.86 and then after 1890, it's 23.3. So as I mentioned earlier, he's now living in England playing first-class cricket and there's a lot more matches. Finally gets his eye in and can still... Just a comment on, on mm-hmm. uh, what, what I found uh, is that he play, only played 19 tests in 13 years. Mm. Um, and his average 31, I think, was pretty good. It's up there. I mean, the the sort of... For modern listeners, you expect a good or great batsman these days to be above 50, I suppose. That's the benchmark. But yeah. we have to think of this in the 19th century standards. And I th- it is quite comparable. I know Trumper and Clem Hill, who 
who are the next generation, theirs are in the high 30s. Yeah. So it sneaks up at this point. But as we've been saying, this is a different time with the wickets. Get wickets yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. From the 1880s. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, so in summary, as we reach the end of this podcast, let's talk about his legacy. Um, what was astounding to me is that at the time of you writing this book and published in 2019, Murdoch wasn't in the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame. Uh, he is now. That's been corrected. But why do you think, for such a giant of the game, it took so long for him to be placed in the Hall of Fame? Prejudice against an Anglo-Australian and the fact that he, he, he more has turned his back on Australian cricket from the point of view of some Australians. Yeah, I think it, it was interesting that one of the reasons he got in the Hall of Fame actually was this was the book we wrote. That really was part and parcel of the sort of lobby. I mean, we didn't write this book to get him in the Hall of sure. Fame, but the fact that this book became available and people then began to understand what a significant person he was, the, the, the small committee that makes these decisions, which I think is in Melbourne, does have the benefit of Gideon Hay on it. I assume he's still on it. And Gideon obviously had mm. love and understanding for this whole period. and. Um, that certainly helped get him onto the into the Australian Hall of Fame, which had also said earlier, you know, out of mind and forgotten. Plus, you know, the sort of view, it's always been difficult to, this Australian Hall of Fame, um, people's perceptions, oh, there was cricket before Bradman. Oh, yes. There's cricket before Trapper. Yeah. Mm. You know, these people, yeah. are, it's, it was, it's hard to get recognition for them, you know. I have to say, I think cricket, more than other sports, actually does recognise some of the early pioneers quite well. I know from... It started to. It certainly has. I know from other... Uh, I mean, I have a particular love of Australian rules football and the, the early pioneers of the game are still completely forgotten in terms of Hall of Fame and official recognition. Cricket from the start, I mean, I think when the Hall of Fame started in 96, 1996, Boforth was there and Trumper, of course. And they have, over time, recognised some of these uh, uh, 19th century greats. But I was still astounded that Murdoch wasn't, A, one of the first inducted. He should have been alongside Spofforth, really, yes. as, the, as the captain of the side that started the Ashes. But also his first-class record is, is excellent. But look at the Sydney cricket ground. This is the ground where Murdoch's home ground, where he made some of his great innings. Is there any recognition at the SCG of Billy Murdoch? Well, there's only the plaque in the dining room, along with the other great players. But that's it. Mm. And any attempt, well, why don't? Why doesn't the SCG have Murdoch gates like Lords mm. has Grace, Grace gates? A player, there's no statue of Billy Murdoch. So it's just well. If, if this book instigated him being uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame, maybe this podcast can start a campaign yes. for a, maybe a stand, or is that too much? Uh, but uh, maybe a statue I, at I the SCG. I mean, the, there was even a struggle with the Trumper stand, you know. There was mm. a debate about whether the Trumper stand should be named after Trumper. You know, any recognition would be great, you is know, the, even if it was something, you know, good, so at least a player of his stature recognised yeah. at the SCG. Is there anything in England for his time in England? Sussex have... No, not yeah. that I'm aware. Mm. Uh, we got... Uh, Inner West Council had some recognition 
Oh, that's true. Yes. Gladstone yes. Park. Yes. Huh? There's there's mm. a what do you call it? Yes, there's a display there in, display. in Gladstone Park because it, Gladstone Park in Balmain was where um, you know, it said Spofforth and Murdoch used to play, and also used to it used to be called Pigeon Park. They used to shoot pigeons there. Murdoch grew up in for a time in uh, Balmain, and Spofforth grew up in Glebe. Yes. They did go to school together. Spofforth was, yeah. And they played either with or against each other. So they were very you know, strongly identified with the Balmain area. So, mm. yeah, the Inner West Council um, have put up a display in the park, which is really nice. They've done that. Um, so final statements on Murdoch. How should we remember him today? The, infl- the man who helped establish him and Spofforth, Ashes tradition, very instrumental, starting that great tradition in cricket. But also Australia's first world-class batsman, uh, a scorer of big hundreds, and someone who helped put Australian cricket on the international map and helped with that victory in 1882 establish the viability of international test cricket. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. I agree 100%. Richard said nothing to add. That's exactly spot on. Lovely. One final question, and then this is a question I ask all my guests. What would Billy Murdoch think of modern cricket, whether that be the white ball, T20, women playing cricket? Um, was he was he someone who adapted to the changes in cricket or was he a traditionalist? I mean, it's always really hard, you know, across generations and epochs and eras. That's why I think it's always very difficult when people say, oh, so-and-so is a better batsman than so-and-so. Or, or, but I think um, Billy would was quite conservative as a person, so I would think I find it hard to believe he'd enjoy, you know, BBL or IPL. Or women's I, cricket? I, uh, women's cricket, yeah, probably not. I, you don't get the impression he was particularly crazy. But women's cricket. But he was a great a lover of cricket. Yeah. And absolutely. I think he might have, uh, he might even have enjoyed some of the new forms of cricket, although he probably would lament the kind of traditional cricket. The money that splashed around today would have solved oh, some of his <laughs> financial issues. He would have yeah. put his hand up straight away to go to the IPL, I, I would have imagined. Yes, yes. Mm. Um, gentlemen, thank you both. But for, one final thing. Oh, yes. The book is still available. Well, yes. I I am going to mention this in my... Oh, but no, please. Uh, the book is available in paperback and we also have some limited edition signed uh, copies mm-hmm. and they're signed by one of Billy's descendants. Mm. Two authors. Um, two, two of the descendants. Uh, the two great-grandchildren. Joyce. Yeah, and the, the, a great-grandson in London. Remember, we got oh, yeah, inside yeah. them, and you and I. Um, so yes, the book is available. Uh, well, how did they get it, Richard? Go to the website. Walla Walla Press. Walla Walla Press. Well, I would encourage everyone to do that. Having read it myself, it's an excellent read, but it's also excellently researched. So credit got the footnotes got the footnotes. Yeah, yes, They've got some great pictures in it. And credit to you both, having just learned what you said earlier that it did um you think campaign 
silently for his induction into the Hall of Fame. So um, Billy Murdoch Cricketing Colossus from 2019 is still available. Uh, please do go out and get it. It's uh, well worth a read. So thank you, gentlemen, both. Thank you, Tom. It's great to talk to you. And if, if we were going to write the book again, it'd be great to have this conversation. We would have <laughs> had lots more ideas to insert into the book. Absolutely. Well, you're, you're, you've both written on other subjects from this period, so you're welcome back at any time. Uh, my name is Tom Ford. Thanks for listening. Until next time, it's bye for now.